Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Politics Podcast. Uh, with us today is Marwan Crady of the University of Pennsylvania and author of a really, really fun and outstanding book, uh, The Naked Blogger of Cairo. Uh, Marwan, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. So um, this was a really um, uh, innovative and I think just really interesting look at uh, the various forms of creative dissent and, um, and, and innovation that's, that you see across the Arab world today. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about how you approached writing this book and what you were trying to accomplish by looking at all of these acts of artistic uh, subversion. Well, I mean, the, the, the project began when I felt paralyzed when uh, the Arab uprising started unfolding. I felt paralyzed simply because I saw the focus back then on, on social media to be missing something. And I did not know quite what I felt it was missing. And so I did not write anything. I started thinking about it and watching and reading like all of us were doing, obsessing over things. And then I went um, and spent, uh, I took a research leave from Penn and spent the year in Beirut at, at AUB and traveled throughout the region, collected all kinds of stuff, you know, um, leaflets uh, of, uh, from Cairo, photos of graffiti, uh, all the stuff that was on the internet, the digital video, the puppetry, um, the political speeches by leaders who were forced to, uh, who were toppled. Um, and then I came back to, uh, to Philadelphia and spent a couple of years going through this massive trove of data and, and at some point, it hit me that it seems that the human body was all over the place. So, for instance, um, a lot of stencil graffiti would have um, human bodies that they would show sort of heroic bodies of protesters, you know, clenched mm -hmm. fist against these sort of um, old and, and, and stony uh, bodies of dictators. Political speeches had a lot of bodily metaphors. So uh, Mubarak would speak of the secret fingers playing in, in, in Egypt. Um, Bashar al-Assad would speak of... Um, the protesters being snake, poisoning the body politic of Syria, poisoning the blood flow of Syria. So a picture began to emerge, um, and that was the same in, in the graffiti, in the videos, in the speeches, in some songs, in some slogans. So I said, okay, let's say the body is what all of this has in common. The next question is why? Well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, one of the things that, that um, many of us know is that Arab activists have one common experience that joins them, and that's typically the experience of torture. And they talk about it in a way that, that seems to be, that's been quite formative for them, the way that power is exercised on them. Second, when you begin reading, I mean, we have quite a few people who study the Middle East, um, Lisa Widin being one of them, um, and some other people who, who have written about how body symbolism uh, functions to um, um, consolidate the power of dictators and how they use it. Mm -hmm. And so we had some of that stuff already in place. But then when I started reading uh, um, things like um, Kantorovich's book, The King's Two Bodies, which took me back to my sort of school days in Lebanon to Al-Farabi's perfect state, then you realize a lot of people had been thinking that the body, whether in the Islamic Golden Age or in medieval Europe, was always central to the sort of the installment mm -hmm. of kings. And thought, okay, can I adapt this to the contemporary Middle East? That's always fraught, as, as you know. Um, and so I started, again, doing some more readings, and I felt there were quite a few sort of French phenomenologists who had written about uh, body symbolism being applicable to modern authoritarianism, mostly because these were French leftists who were trying to, uh, to, to um, come to terms with Soviet uh, mm -hmm. totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so I had the sort of pieces that I needed for this. And the analysis began to, to look at how, you know, what, what kind of, uh, how, how to combine these ideas with activism. So 
it was quite simple. Um, I identified two main kinds of activism. One uh, that I call radical, which uh, things like self-immolation, like hunger strikes, where you literally put your own body at risk. And these acts tend to be so powerful that they elicit response from people who watch them, who see them. Right? We, we know mm -hmm. this from self-immolations during the Vietnam War, uh, during the Prague Spring, and so that's one kind. But there's a second kind that all of us who study the Middle East have seen over the years, which is, for instance, political humor. Um, the kind of very sedimented, um, not activism, but you're like chipping away mm -hmm. at, the, at the aura of the dictator on a daily basis. And I said, okay, how do these combine? Well, they combine in the sense that you get a radical act that sort of uh, breaks the routine, becomes a big event, but then falls back into the routine, gets sedimented. So Boaz Easy ended up on postage stamps, on, on graffiti, um, um, squares were named mm -hmm. after him, that kind of stuff. And then there's a, um, so, so the first part of the book focus on the radical type, the second on the, what I call the gradual type, you know, the laughing cow yeah. about Mubarak and all that. And the third part is where I really f feel um, sort of goes down to the ground and says, okay, if the body of the dictator symbolically is so important for power, then um, destroying, undermining that body means taking back, meaning means the, the ordinary people taking back public space. And this is where I do, you know, mural graffiti, um, stencil graffiti, puppetry, um, um, the sort of uh, hand symbolism uh, with the Arabia um, massacre and what, what followed, eye symbolism when Egyptian police snipers shot at people's eyes, to argue that, that this, is, this is the way in which um, experiences fell through the human body are projected onto public space through colors on walls, through sounds um, 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 in the air, to take back um, um, space. Uh, the, the fourth part of the book looks at women, right? Women revolution have always been yeah. fraught, so, and we have the title essay of the book, what happens when women get naked, or they don't, but they want to enter revolution, and there are mm -hmm. all kinds of, of interesting things that happen. And the last part looks at, at the biggest challenge to bodily activism, which is death. This is where I go to Islamic State, and I say, if you look at how the body has evolved as a political, um, 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 as a political idiom, so to speak, this is where you might end up which is death, torture, beheadings, that, that kind of gruesome stuff. Now, one of the things which is so interesting here is that you have a relationship between, on the one hand, a focus on very much individual creativity, individual activism, the highlighting of very specific bodies in specific contexts and times, but it's within the context of mass mobilization where, you know, what gives Tahrir Square its power is both these individuals, but also the fact that you have a million people and the sheer yes. force of the, this anonymous crowd. How do, you, how do you kind of analyze the relationship between this, between the individual mm -hmm. and the mass? Because both of them are forms, of course, of, re of revolutionary power. Absolutely. This is, this is a very important question. This is something that I spent quite a bit of time figuring out. So the main argument that I make in the book is that this kind of political creativity is nearly always collective. Uh, and what happens, so you have a lot of sort of groups, puppetry groups, graffiti groups, you know, the Mona Lisa brigades, the Masasit Mate in, in, in Syria. Um, the, 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 there's, what I argue is between sort of the energy of groups and masses and the creativity of smaller groups of people, um, there emerges one or two or three individuals that become sort of very well known. So, for example, you get um, sloganeering. 
you get a leader in a march saying something, people repeating after him. This is something that Eliot Kola um, 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 wrote about. Um, and, and this is when practice after practice, rehearsal after mm -hmm. rehearsal, sort of forms of, of activism, uh, so for instance, slogans that are really, that rhyme really well, that sort of hit a vocal chord, emerge out of this back and forth between groups and, 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 and individuals. Um, but the big issue here is that there is a lot of practice. There's a lot of rehearsal. Um, these very captivating graffiti did not emerge out of the blue. Very often these were trained painters, um, even professors of, of fine arts, who sort of got inspired by all these bodies masked, mm -hmm. for instance, in Tahrir Square, and, and translated that energy onto the walls. There's, there's an interesting kind of dilemma there in the sense that on the one hand, the, the, these revolutionary movements, they push towards power. But these individual, cre you know, these creative, artistic subversives, in a sense, they push against power. They, would, they wouldn't be very good if they were aligned with power. They wouldn't be funny anymore. Um, and so how, how, do you, how do you deal with that tension between this kind of essential oppositionism yeah. that, the real, that really creative artists typically occupy? Um, th that's a very difficult uh, um, um, thing to, to explore because on the one hand, um, the, the whole thing about revolu for a revolution to succeed is to replace a system by a new system. And, and we all know this is what did not work very well in the Arab uprisings. So we have, you know, we have the example of, of Slim Amanu in, in, in mm -hmm. Tunisia. He became a minister in the first government, uh, but didn't last too long, right? Because I think there's always this oppositional energy. You do lose it once you incorporate the system. You know, academics, we deal with this all mm -hmm. the time, right? You want to you wanna understand how power functions, and you want to be able, perhaps, if you wanted to engage with it, but completely getting subsumed in it, you lose that ability to be oppositional, to be critical, to be autonomous. One of the big things, I think, is it, because of the violence, um, that route was closed. And so you see a lot of artists, instead of becoming, um, you know, working in museums and foundations and ministries in Egypt or in Tunisia, they end up in art galleries in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, they end up in residential fellowships in Berlin. I think that's a shame uh, because you're losing a lot of this creative energy and, and then people don't really care about the revolution or even if they do from a distance, they can't do much. Um, but I don't think this is sort of a, I, I argue that this is not necessarily a selling out. Well, right? you take someone like, uh, like Basim Yusuf, uh -huh. the, the, the comedian in Egypt, who when he was the, the kind of the face of opposition and criticism to, to, to President Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood, he was widely celebrated. And then after the coup, he really struggled to find a place uh, yes. in a new military regime. He struggled to find a place, and he's one of those people who actually had to leave Egypt. Um, I never thought that we'll find out that um, Muslim Brotherhood is more uh, welcoming of, or, or, or less non-welcoming of political humor than the military, but this is what, this is what we saw. So Bassem Yusuf, I mean, he didn't do too bad, but he had to leave. He mm -hmm. lost his audience uh, because he got threatened, and he left Egypt, and he spends his time now mostly in the U.S. and in Europe on the lecture circuit. Um, th that's, that's a typical example. And this is someone who's still known, who's still successful, right? Who still makes money out of this oppositional energy that launched him in the public sphere. You have people who are just going back to doing uh, very private things mm -hmm. uh, because of this intense repression that we, that we saw in Egypt and elsewhere. Now, the, the way you described your book, the trajectory of it, it ends in a very disturbing place. Right? Yes, it it ends in the Islamic State and kind of almost nihilism and uh, this very different sort of energy. And is that, 
actually kind of metaphorically the way you understand where the region is right now? So to, uh, to, to a large extent, yes. So when I was finishing, I, I wrote the book in the Netherlands. I had a, a fellowship at, at the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Study. And right as I was finishing, I got invited to a workshop um, in Amsterdam with um, Arab Spring activists, mostly Syrian activists. And just as I was ready to succumb to this notion that it's all over, it's dark, they said no. They said, we can't afford to feel like that. So one of them was an activist from Raqqa who was organizing the sort of mobile phone film festivals people watch in basement. Uh, they were spraying graffiti in Raqqa, he told me, against Islamic State. And he said, basically, whoever is the oppressor, uh, we cannot but we are condemned to be against um, um, power abusers, so to speak. So that sort of corrected my pessimism. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of stasis and, and darkness in the region, as, as, as we know now. Um, and now that I'm working on um, um, Islamic State videos and things of that sort, it's very difficult to be optimistic. And, and even if you look at some of the, the, the more high-profile uh, artistic productions of recent years, I mean, there very much is a theme uh, of death and despair. How could there not be, looking around the region as it is today? I mean, all you have to see are these the, this, the drone footage from Aleppo, and now we have um, you know the Battle of Mosul, and Raqqa may be next, and um, Egypt. We know what the depth to which Egypt has has, has fallen today. So as you said, it's very difficult. Um, there's anarchy um, uh, in a lot of places. Um, there's there's despair. There's pessimism. But people who live there are condemned to make choices. Do I want to hide and pretend it's not happened? Uh, do I want to try to emigrate, which a lot of them are trying to do, or do I want to face it? An, an interesting part of uh, at least some of the vignettes in your book, uh, it, it does capture that sense of, I would almost call it destructive play, yeah. um, where, where it's, it's maintaining that sense of uh, transgressing boundaries, but in a way that is, it's creative and it's, optimism isn't exactly the right word for it, but it very much has this playful component to it. Is that what's being lost in, in, in today's kind of less you know, open period? I believe so. I believe so. So if you look at the first couple of years where, where um, um, Islamic State emerged, if you look at all the, the spoofs and the satires and the attacks, the sort of performance art that some of the people who were involved in, in the Arab uprising mounted against it, you see that they're not there anymore. You know, so why is it that even Iraqi television had a, had a um, um, comedy show mm -hmm. making fun of them? Why has it disappeared? Right? So it was oppositional energy in the case of Iraq, for instance, it got integrated in, in, a, in the state uh, propaganda instruments, in state television, and now it's nowhere to be seen. Um, there is such a thing as war fatigue, right? And so the thing with these kinds of creative energy is that it, it, it goes underground, but it's always there, and it waits for activists, wait for, again, auspicious opportunities to reemerge. When that will happen... Who knows? So you think that there really are then these continuing uh, underground streams of creativity and, and kind of playful energy that are, you know, they don't find their, their moment right now, but they're not dead. Absolutely. So, so they can be underground. They can also be overground, but typically not in the Middle East. So there are, there may be a few in Beirut, maybe a few in Tunis, but, you know, if you go to Berlin, Amsterdam, New York, you have so many of these graffiti artists, you know, they may be doing designs for, uh, for Louis Vuitton or they may be uh, having a residential fellowship at MoMA, but they're still practicing their skills. They're becoming more well-known. They're writing comic books about their evolution. Um, I don't think these energies are lost. They've been redirected. And with um, globalization, social media, transnational television, maybe the fact that they're physically distant, 
doesn't matter as much? It doesn't matter as much. I think it does matter, but not, not as much as would, would have matters in revolutions past, where if you're not there, you're just not there. So I think people are waiting for the right opportunity. Um, um, a couple of, you know, we, we see calls now again for Egyptian youth to reorganize and face politics. We know how difficult it is in today's Egypt. Um, but, you know, human, the human will to live um, in, in sort of dignity and to, to, to have a, a, a decent life uh, with justice is not going to go away. This sounds grandiose, but this is what you encounter when you talk to these people. We say, we don't have any choice. You know, we either leave or we do this. Well, thanks. Uh, we've been speaking with Marwan Crady. He's the author of The Naked Blogger of Cairo, uh, out recently with Harvard University Press. Uh, Marwan, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much.